Discover Ag Podcast is brought to you by Case IH. Case IH has solutions for every challenge, equipment for every farm. Case IH is built by farmers. You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Good morning, Discovering Discos. This week, we discover how small town residents are uniting to fight a gigantic monkey farm. You heard that correctly. I said a monkey farm. Why grocery stores are apparently the new hottest date spot and how new research is tossing shade at Cheerios and Quaker Oats for having traces of an agricultural chemical in their products. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. We're your hosts, Natalie and Tara, millennial cattle rancher and dairy farmer. And every Thursday, we go beyond the headlines to discover what's new in the world of food. And at the end of today's episode, you're going to want to stick around if you've ever had questions about your chicken, poultry, and your eggs, because we have a fabulous interview with the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Poultry and Eggs and the International Poultry Welfare Alliance. And normally, it would have been a full week since we last talked to you all, but we actually had a personal episode drop on Tuesday. That's right. It's the end of the month, which means you guys get a second episode, a second Discover episode. And I have to say, this month's personal episode, I don't know if I've ever laughed more in one of our personal episodes than this month's. I actually made Daniel and the girls listen to it on our uh, road trip to Dallas this week, and they were laughing too. Like I was, Daniel was like, you guys are getting funnier. I was like, so we weren't funny to begin with? What? (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. (laughs) It was definitely a backhanded compliment, but I took it. I took the compliment. I was like, thanks, we're funny. Oh, yeah. Maddie's jumping in. She said the edits from our personal episode were great, quite entertaining. So apparently we're on to something. Um, If you are new here, Natalie kind of mentioned this on Tuesday, but our personal episodes are a little different than our Thursday episodes. We cover things that are just more, um, for lack of a better word, personal. So I mentioned that I was in Dallas this weekend. I'm still in Dallas. Um, Weird week for me. But I have to tell you, I made the worst parenting mistake this weekend. Oh, man, there's a first time for everything. I mean, at least I'm admitting that it was a mistake, but here we are. So (laughs) we decided to go to Dallas this weekend and in part of it be that we were celebrating Annalise's birthday. The issue is, is Annalise's birthday is not until like the first week of March. And by announcing that we are celebrating her birthday back, what was it? February 25th means that we are celebrating her birthday every day between now and her actual birthday. It is going to be the longest birthday saga of my life. I mean, I feel like this is kind of a little bit of the kettle calling the pot black. I was about to say that. That's not how the saying goes. But I was going to say that it is kind of, I mean, like I am the birthday queen. So I did this to myself. The birthday crown does not fall far from the birthday tree in this (laughs) instance. Okay, well, if you are wondering what I'm doing for, yeah, the next several days, it is celebrating a seven-year-old birthday. So that is my life currently. All right, you guys, diving into the first article to discover today, headline, small town residents unite to fight a common enemy, a huge monkey farm. So this was out of USA Today, and as absolutely crazy as it is, it discusses how local officials in Bainbridge, Georgia which is a rural outpost about 20 miles north of the Florida Panhandle, recently approved a startup's plan to build one of the largest monkey breeding facilities in the nation. I mean, talk about a discover left field. We're going to be chatting about a monkey farm. I never thought monkey farm would be on our list of topics, but here we are. The monkey farm will actually have like twice as many monkeys as the town has people, which is kind of insane when you think about it. But at first I was like, wait, who is like buying all these monkeys? I'm not going to lie. I like did not know where this was going at all. I thought like people were buying exotic monkeys and this was like a breeding facility. That is not what it is. It is actually where they are bred and sold for pharmaceutical companies, universities, and laboratories for medical research, which makes a lot more sense. But again, that is just something I never thought about in my life. Like I knew we did animal testing in like pharmaceuticals, but I never thought like, where do those monkeys come from? Where do they get them? Like this was completely undiscovered territory for me. Yeah. And I feel like if we are this surprised about it, imagine how the residents of Bainbridge, Georgia feel. (laughs) Seriously. These poor people are not happy about it. No, there was a quote from one of the local who 
property line borders the area that's been cleared for this site. And they're saying, quote, it's unreal. Our world is upside down, which we'll get into it. Feels upside down, but on one hand also makes sense. So going back to the numbers, as you uh, the title alluded to and you alluded to, this is these are not small numbers. So you mentioned that the facility will hold twice as many monkeys as the town's population. So they're saying at capacity will hold about 30,000 monkeys. It will be a 200 acre acre facility. And we learned last week that that's what 1.3 acres is a football field. Yeah, I think that was the stat we learned. So not quite 200 football fields, but roughly that range, which if you can imagine that, that, that that's quite the facility. I thought it was interesting. One of the quotes was saying that the facility is a cross between a maximum security prison and a daycare. <laughs> I saw that too. And I was like, what a weird quote. Like, I think it was like the CEO or something. And I was like, he needs like a speech writer <laughs> to help him <laughs> maybe do better quotes. Chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. Go back to that. Let's chat GPT some responses for this man. So getting into the fact that, you know, the town is very much in like up in arms about this. One of the quotes from one of the residents actually said it's like putting a nuclear plant in my backyard. And I was like, okay, whoa, that feels extreme. But it kind of goes to that mentality of like not in my backyard, right? Like there's things in our society like we need to have, whether it's a nuclear plant or apparently a monkey farm, and nobody wants it like in their town or their community. But at the same time, like I I feel like with the unknown of like people not knowing what a monkey farm is, it's not surprising how upset they are. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those things that you can safely have an opinion when you are, you know, 7, 15, 20 states away. It's much different when you're in your backyard. I can see how they're upset. But diving into something you said earlier, which is that this is used for research, I want to kind of double click into that because I think there's some important, I guess, information around that. So the company behind this is called Safer Human Medicine. And in their words, they are committed to building a safe state-of-the-art facility that fills a crucial need in the pharmaceutical research field. So as you mentioned, these monkeys will be sold to pharmaceutical companies, universities, and laboratories for research. And I know that's a part of the discussion that people don't want to hear and they don't want to talk about. But animals are used for research. And animals are needed for research. Uh, Backing up just a little bit, though. So, like, why is this facility built now? So, actually, in 2020, everything about, like, the importation, breeding of these monkeys changed. Because before that, I think this is actually no surprise when you think about it. But historically, most of the monkeys came from China. And that's completely stopped in 2020. So, it left this huge void of people, like, needing monkeys for this research. Which I feel like kind of now goes into your point. Like, do we need monkeys? Like, should we be testing on monkeys? And there is some really great great quotes from the National Academics of Science, Engineering, and Medicine that they maintain based on the current state of science. There are no alternatives that can fully replace non-human primates. Like, it is, it is needed even if we maybe don't feel... I don't know, like comfortable about it. Like I can, I totally get like both sides of this that people are really uncomfortable talking about it. And yet if we want to have safe pharmaceuticals and safe products, we have to be able to figure out a way to like test them. Yeah, I mean, I don't like thinking about it. I I really don't. Like I don't like thinking about animals being used for research. But the other hand is like, it's not humans being researched because we wouldn't put like humans in the, the trial. But essentially you are because you'd have unstudied compounds products going out into the market that are essentially being tested on the humans that are using them. So as you know, the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine quoted, like there are no alternatives right now that can replace the non-human primates. I thought it was also interesting. There was a quote from a microbiologist out of the University of Pittsburgh. She studies tuberculosis and she said she has had to abandon projects because of the shortage. She called the shortage nothing less than a crisis. So going back to what you said, like If China's not supplying, you know, or whatever foreign country isn't supplying our animals for this type of research to be conducted, like, where does that leave the United States, I guess, essentially? Yeah, beyond just like the thought of, you know, testing on monkeys, there's some other controversies. Apparently, they like are getting big tax breaks for moving this like plant or this, I guess, quote unquote, farm into this community. And it wasn't like properly done through the right channels. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like valid concerns for anyone. Like when you look at this topic and headline at a surface level, 
I think like animal welfare is like one of the biggest concerns. So when you have headlines like that popping up as like historical, like it's not boding well to try and get this passed in the United States at Georgia or anywhere else. I saw Houston, like I think they turned it down recently. So I don't know if I see this like taking off in the US, which again, being a rancher, like someone who cares for animals, like that's my job. Again, I don't love the idea of this kind of, you know, I don't love the idea of animals being used for research, but I, I like I don't have the answer to like replace that either. Diving into some maybe more of the less serious side, more comical side of this, there were sound bites and quotes I absolutely could not take seriously throughout this. There was one that said, This is a disaster. I don't want my kids playing out here breeding in that monkey stuff. What if it one gets out? That's all it takes. And I'm like, could you imagine like monkeys on the loose 30,000 monkeys on the loose <laughs> monkeys on break loose from the maximum security monkey farm it would be like real life jumanji oh my gosh i also had to chuckle at some of the signs the homes and businesses were putting around the town which again i absolutely know i would probably be protesting this if it was my backyard but they're putting up signs that say like stop the monkey farm no monkey breeding. And could you imagine like driving through the town and seeing those signs like and being like, what the hell are these people doing here? I know. It's just such a crazy, I think, like thing the city is facing. Yeah. On the flip side of the coin, obviously, the company is saying that it will bring a lot of jobs and economy. They're promising that they will hire local, that they will be buying local. Um, They're saying that it'll be some of the best pay for workers in the county. So I do wish they'd kind of interviewed someone that maybe was excited about it, like someone that would be like applying for one of these jobs and like give a difference of opinion. Um, But it was definitely like a one-sided article. I will kind of, as I guess I'm wrapping up this article, mention one of the people behind all of these protests, which is no surprise, is actually the animal rights group PETA. So a lot of the lawyers and like the help that's being provided to this community is from PETA. I am absolutely not surprised that PETA was involved. I thought there would be more PETA statements kind of in this. I thought maybe PETA would be coming out their own article around this. I was shocked that there wasn't more... I guess, like news from the PETA standpoint around this. I absolutely agree with that. I feel like anytime PETA can weigh in on anything, they do. And this feels like a headline that most people would actually get behind. Like recently, PETA has been in the news about like slamming Taylor Swift for visiting a zoo in Australia. But like they're not broadcasting like how they're supporting a community fighting a monkey farm. Like I just want to talk to them about their PR strategy. They're going after the clicks in the headlights. They know if they put T-Swift in with PETA... It's going to get probably clicked on. Although, I don't know, PETA and Monkey Farm, I would probably click on that too. They all feel like pretty good sound bites. I do find it interesting that they made that statement about Taylor Swift. If they know Taylor Swift at all, they know she is like the absolute cat queen. Like there's probably not another person on this planet that loves cats more than Taylor Swift. I mean, she put her cat on her shoulders for the time cover. She has to be so annoyed. Like she's like, I'm currently ruling the world right now. I don't have time to deal with you and your shenanigans, PETA. Thank you very much. And I think it just goes to serve what I say about PETA all the time, which is no one likes PETA, but PETA. Like I'm sure Taylor Swift is like, I love animals, but I cannot stand you, PETA. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing is PETA is so extreme. Like, they don't even think you should have pets. So they're probably, like, grouchy that Taylor Swift had a cat in the Time magazine, you know? Listen, that cat lives a better life than I do, PETA, okay? I don't think we need to be worried about Taylor Swift's cat of all the things to be worried about. I actually saw a funny stat about PETA that they give celebrities the benefit of the doubt. When a celebrity is spotted wearing fur or exotic skin, PETA sends them a polite letter first in hopes of educating the star about how animals are crammed into cages, blah, 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 you know, in their thing. And so I'm like, how many times has Taylor Swift gotten a letter from them that is like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) PETA does not agree with you. And I actually saw in one of the articles where it was like, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey declined to comment. And I was like, yeah, because they have 50 billion other things going on besides responding to PETA about going to a zoo. 
Western fashion is everywhere right now. And if you are wanting to join in with the perfect statement pieces that are authentic, unique, and handcrafted, you have to check out Vote. Vote Silversmith is the iconic silver brand of American West. Since 1970, Vote Silversmith has been owned and managed by members of the Vote family. Vote creates every silver piece in their factories in old Mexico with local craftsmen. The best part is, is that Vote Silversmith backs every silver piece with a promise, a lifetime guarantee. Should your genuine vote sterling silver product break, bend, twist, or sustain damage for any reason, they will fix it or replace replace it free of charge. Natalie and I wear our vote jewelry so often, whether it is simpler pieces for our everyday wear or something bold for a date night out. We find they add the perfect touch to almost any of our outfits. For style and culture icons, vote is the clear choice. Go to votesilversmith.com, use our code DISCOVER to save yourself some money on your next order, or click the link in our show notes for vote. And again, use our code DISCOVER to save some money. All right, you guys, diving into the second article to discover this week headline, the hottest place for a first date is actually the grocery store. This was out of the kitchen and the writer who is a younger female noticed a budding trend on dating apps in the LA area. And that was dates at grocery stores. So she trialed it out. She went on three first dates to different grocery stores and then reported back what she discovered. And I have to say, honestly, I didn't think the article in and itself was most, you know, riveting, but I find the topic absolutely fascinating. I completely agree. The article was like a little want want for me. You went on three dates in 10 days. I can't fathom going on three first dates in six months, let alone 10 days. Like, surely there was more to write about than what you did. But I, I agree. The overall concept is really interesting. I mean, they she was saying that she saw multiple Hinge profiles that mentioned meeting up in like wine bars in grocery stores. And that's what gave her the idea to trial this. So like, it's not just her doing this. Like people are doing this everywhere. And I wonder if it just makes people feel like, more at ease, like more in a like a relaxed environment where you could just be like hanging out, having a conversation versus like the high pressure of being in like a restaurant or a bar or something like that. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's a couple different points of why to me, this seems like actually an ideal first date. When I first read it, I was like, not did not something I would throw out for my first date. And then when I was like reading through it, I was like, wait, no, this makes sense. Because as you mentioned, a lot of time first dates are, you know, getting dressed up or going out to like kind of atmospheres where maybe you can't get to know the person the best. And I absolutely think food is so personal. There's something about food, being in the kitchen, cooking, eating that you could feel very intimate with someone when you're grocery store shopping with them. Yeah, actually going back to the fact that we are like deep in preparing for our speech for South by Southwest, which is about, you know, like food at its core. And I feel like one of the things I've been learning with that speech as we've been going through it is just how passionate people are about like different food choices and like what they're deciding in the grocery store. And actually producer Maddie's weighing in that like it would teach you a lot about someone really quickly. Like do they drink? Do they eat bougie food? Or do they eat crap food? Are they vegetarian? Do they eat meat? Like you could have so many conversations in like the grocery store aisles very quickly. But I will note, they weren't just like walking the aisles. They were in like bougie grocery stores. Yeah. So I want to actually touch on that in a minute because I went to a Reddit thread and there's the funniest comment about a store. But going to what you just said, absolutely. Like you can learn so much from someone about what they add to their shopping cart. The article is talking about like, you know, what do they consider to be like treats? Do they, you know pair energy drinks with a can of like spray cheese you know are they one thing I thought was hilarious they were talking about like generic foods like are they getting like the brand name foods or the generic and not to be like a food snob but there is a lot of generic foods I cannot do like I absolutely cannot do them one time Tad brought home generic marshmallows and I was like never again Tad never again we're not we don't need to save the 70 cents for the generic marshmallows you're like, we are getting the jet puffs. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. My s'more is going to be name brand. 
So I have actually been to a Gelson, which is the grocery store they call out here. They also call out Whole Foods. And so on that, like they are in like a wine bar inside of Whole Foods. So it's they she said that once the bars closed down in the grocery store, then they decided to like start walking the aisles. So it definitely like there you had a lot going on in these conversations. Well, that's what I kept thinking in my mind. Actually, after I got done with this, I was like, the perfect first date would be going to a farmer's market, shopping for your meal, going home and cooking your meal together. So any ladies or men out there that are single, feel free to take that idea because I feel like that seems like an ideal first date. I guess Daniel and I were ahead of our times because one of our first dates was actually at a grocery store and did exactly what you just said. Was that planned or unintentional? It was intentional. It was, I mean, we knew each other our whole life. So it was not like an awkward first date. And it was actually our second time we were dating. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for a personal episode. <laughs> I know. More on that later. So at the time, Daniel basically lived in like a frat house. He lived with like three of his brothers and his cousins. And every Wednesday, they would have a Wednesday night barbecue. And so when we were dating, I offered to help him go grocery shopping for the Wednesday night barbecue. So we went and picked up all the supplies. We came back and we cooked. And it's actually the night I decided that Daniel was the one. Like it was the moment I had. Like I was like, I'm going to marry this man. And it was like very much, I think, that comfort feeling of like, If we, he was like, he walked in the door. I have like this exact memory of like him walking in the door. It's of the house we currently live in. And I was like, if we can have this much fun together, going grocery shopping, having our friends over on a random Wednesday night, like I can do this for the rest of my life. And so I absolutely think this is like actually really good. It's so funny you say that because one of the articles I was reading was talking about how the most important information that you can glean from a grocery store date is whether the person is willing to bring their energy and excitement to something very ordinary, which listen, all of us married people tuning in, we know that life can get very (laughs) monotonous. And so I think that's such a valid point of like, how does this person approach something that like maybe isn't fun and needs to be repeatable? And it actually made me laugh and chuckle because I saw this meme that was going around that was talking about how there's things you should do with a person before you marry them. And one of them, it said, was like, make them use a computer with really slow internet. And I was laughing so hard. But I was like, they should add, like, go grocery store shopping with like a screaming toddler and see like how your relationship compares to that, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I'm like here for the grocery store dates. I think it should become a 2024 trend. Absolutely. I feel like if there's one thing about this article that made me realize I'm glad I'm not dating, though, is the dating apps. Like, I was married before the dating apps existed. And I cannot imagine using a dating app to meet someone. And I say that as my sister met her husband on Hinge. But I, like, (laughs) I would be unhinged if I had to use a dating app. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that is such a clever Hinge slogan. They They should say, like, go from unhinged to hinged or something. That should be their slogan surely it probably is right like maybe we just don't know that i don't know daniel said we're funny i think we're on to new things we've never been to before the last thing i'll say is when i was reading a reddit thread about this there was one that said only if they take me to whole foods and pay for my groceries will i do this (laughs) (laughs) talk about an expensive date like you think about how expensive dinner is nowadays like pay for my groceries at like a bougie like what if they went to what is the one in la that we covered yeah or one yes or one that's what i was thinking wouldn't you die if the girl was like, so yeah, we're going to go to Irwan and you're going to buy me $40 strawberries. He'd be like, (laughs) (laughs) you'd learn a lot about a person real quick right then. The other one was, um, a commenter said, that's prime hunting ground. I'm not going to bring a date with me there. (laughs) That is so funny that that someone said that because Daniel always says if something happened to me, he's like the first place I'd go is I'd take the girls to a target and just walk around like I needed help. Like women come help me. I'm a single dad looking for love. Okay, which brings me to my last point. The part of this that had me rolling is when she described um, kissing one of the guys outside of the closing automatic doors. (laughs) I was just like a small young boy giggling like about people kissing. And it made me have the same feelings as whenever I watch Farmer Wants a Wife and they're kissing. Like I just I can't watch people (laughs) or listen to people kissing without like being so awkward and uncomfortable about it. 
I do think there is nothing natural about it, but I always go back to putting myself in that situation. And I would probably like miss the person's mouth. I would be so nervous and uncomfortable, (laughs) like trying to kiss on camera. Like I I don't, I don't know where my kiss would end up. It would be a disaster. 100%. So I feel like men, the men on Farmer Wants a Wife are doing a pretty good job. They though have the tool of their hats. They're really good about covering their faces with their cowboy hats on Farmer Wants a Wife. And I will say it like looks so hot. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe my husband needs to start wearing a cowboy hat, first off. And second of all, it just like gives him a little privacy. Like you don't have to feel like you're watching that super, like you know what's happening without like feeling so intimately involved in that conversation. Yeah, that that wasn't the first time that cowboy has pulled his hat off and used <laughs> he it knew as what a he was doing. Like, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, and it was a solid 10 out of 10 move. Speaking of grocery stores, have you ever gone to the grocery store and had questions about the meat aisle? Questions like, where is that beef from? How is that pork produced? Or what type of seafood should I be buying? Don't worry, you are not alone. A lot of people want to know more about where their meat comes from than the labels at the grocery store are telling them. That is one of the great things about buying from Good Ranchers. You can support local ranches, get quality meat you can trust, and have your meat delivered right to your door from GoodRanchers.com. Good Ranchers is a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast, and right now they have an incredible offer. Do not miss out on this offer. You can get free bacon for four years. All you have to do is to Subscribe today. It is a leap year special. And you will get 1.5 pounds of their Applewood smoked bacon in every order for the next four years. And I'm telling you guys, their bacon is so good. That is 72 pounds or $900 of free bacon just for being a subscriber. All you need All you need to do to claim this offer is use code DISCOVER at GoodRanchers.com. Again, that's code DISCOVER to get Good Ranchers American Meat delivered. And as always, before we move into our last and final article, we do want to give a Discover shout out. This review is from Jill Marie P. She titled it, Discover Ag is where it's at. I love listening to Discover Ag every Thursday. It's such a great way to stay informed on what is happening in the industry. I find myself including things I learned in conversations with people. The hosts are entertaining and knowledgeable. Highly recommend becoming a disco. Thank you, Drill Marie P. If that is you and you are tuning in right now, please feel free to DM us over on the Discover Instagram page. We will send you some goodies for leaving a review. And if you are not Jill Marie P. and you would like to take a second and leave us a review when you are done listening today, we will go ahead and send you one as well. All right, you guys, diving into the last and final article to discover headline, 80% of Americans test positive for chemicals found in Cheerios and Quaker Oats that may cause infertility and delayed puberty. So this was out of the New York Post. Um, It's kind of everywhere right now, though. Um, It is from Tara's favorite organization, the EWG. So the Environmental Working Group published a study in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology that found a, quote, staggering 80% of Americans tested positive for a harmful additive called chlormaquat. Literally, my first note is, holy shit, this is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's all over social media. It's on like every news article. Everyone's covering this. Um, I actually first heard about it from my brother-in-law who lives in San Francisco. And the fact that he was texting me about it like over a week and a half ago, I was like, it definitely piqued my interest. Like, what is this? What happened? Like, what information dropped? And the second thing I'll say is, are you coming around to my feelings about the environmental working group? Or are you <laughs> still liking them? Because they're killing me. Listen, I've never said they're my favorite either. I just said sometimes I use them, which makes me question my actions a little bit because I think it is important to note specifically when we're talking about the EWG and this article, they are a lobbying group who will benefit off of the purchasing of organic. So when they are pushing headlines like this, and because we'll get into this a little bit, but the end of this, it's kind of like if you're going to buy Cheerios and oats, buy organic. That's that's called agenda driven, right? So you have to, when you are looking at articles like this and information like this, you have to understand who was the group behind it putting out the study. We talked about this when we did our hot off the press, you are what you eat. You have to look at agenda. It doesn't mean you completely rule out the, you know, the article or the study or whatever. You just have to consider that a factor. And so that's why we're bringing up the WG now. 
Yeah, and I think one of the issues with, I personally think with the EWG, I would love to see what their press release looked like for this study because I bet it was so strategically worded. And the issue I feel like a lot of times with the EWG is they are like headline driven. And that was exactly this. So many people read one headline and never got past it. Oh my gosh, the amount of TikToks and reels out there that are actually just reading this article and not providing any other information is astounding. It's so frustrating. So let's maybe provide some context. Let's talk about the study and like what it was because there is some major, major flaws with it. For sure. So diving a little bit into this chemical, it is called chlormic. I'm so glad you had to say that. I just feel like if if we each have a job on this podcast, it is you have to say hard words and I don't. It um, is definitely doesn't roll off the tongue. We'll say that. But it is a little fun fact, not approved in the United States, which I think people looking at that headline would not know. I think they would be extremely fearful that U.S. farmers are spraying this on all the crops and it is everywhere. But the way it's getting into our food system is actually through imports. So in 2018, the U.S. began accepting imports of oats in countries where the chemicals allowed. So that is how it's getting into the U.S. food system. It is not from U.S. farmers and ranchers, which I think, you know, it was kind of a interesting side topic to I'm not sure if we want to dive into it or not, but it, it's like the complexities of importation and exportation, right? Well, it kind of goes to when we covered France a couple episodes back that France farmers were mad that things were being imported into France that they were not able to use and it puts them at a disadvantage. And I think this speaks to that too, right? Like if you're going to allow something to be imported, then like your farmers should have access, like it should be a level playing field. And if you don't think it's okay for your farmers to use them, we shouldn't be importing the product from anyone anywhere. Like that's, I think that's where I still stand on this. No, I would agree. And I think it makes it frustrating for not only US citizens, but like you said, the farmers and ranchers too, because like when we talk a lot about like environmental regulations, I think it lends itself to the conversation that like we can do everything here to put more stringent you know, guidelines on our U.S. farmers. But like what happens when China and India or, you know, whatever country it is, like doesn't care, right? Like we, we, it's just frustrating. I also think it it leans to like the conversation of like uh, manufacturing elsewhere too, you know, and, and the conversations of like, how do we retain everything on U.S. soil, which that's like a very big topic. But getting into the article, I think I want to say a little clause that like, I don't want, to say that this article is like hogwash. Like, so please no one come for us (laughs) or at least for me with some of the things I'm going to say about how like I'm not taking chemicals in our food system seriously because I do think chemicals in our food is like a serious topic. But like I have major issues with this article because there's a lot of things that I think are being like sway, like twisted a little bit. And also I think it's like major fear mongering. No, you're right. It's total fear mongering and so much misinformation. I think they're definitely using statistics like percentages to their advantage is one of my biggest takeaways from this. Um, No matter how you feel about the actual results, the issue is it is such a small sample size. They only sampled 96 people. It isn't even the same people they sampled time and time again. Like they were just collecting samples from like random individuals over the years. And one of the years, I think it was 2018, they actually just bought samples from a lab. They didn't even have any information on who the people were that they were actually collecting the samples from. Yeah. And all of that is very important information, you guys. But going to, like you said, the 96 samples, the way the title is worded, 80% of Americans you look at that title and you feel like it's 80% of Americans. So you feel like it's like millions of people, right? And it's literally 80% of 96 samples. So I'm not saying that like 80% of that sample isn't, again, like an alarming thing, but like you have to have context behind the headlines. Like there's a difference between saying like 80% of this small trial we sampled versus 80% of Americans. It's such clickbait and it's starting to make me really angry. And that's the other thing I'll say about this small number is this is what is called a pilot study, you guys. So a pilot study is a small preliminary study, which is often used just to test the feasibility of an idea prior to conducting a more comprehensive study. I heard a doctor say why there's even a headline on a pilot study is absolutely absurd. Like it is not typical. And I think that goes back to like a little bit of like the EWG being involved. Yeah. Let me give just like one example. So in 2017, they collected samples from 23 people. 16 of those 23 people 
had levels detected. So that's 69%. The next year, they sampled 23 people again, and 17 people had levels. So that's 74%. The headline reads, there's a 5% increase over, you know, multiple years, when in reality, it was one single extra person. That's like not even enough to be statistically different. And yet they like ran with it. And then the number that's floating around about 90%, then 90% of the samples were detected in 2020. There was 45 people detected out of 50. That is like not even enough to even have close to a valid study. Talking about uh, statistical differences, one of the huge things that is not being talked about on this uh, with this article is the dose and whether it's statistically different or not or what those again numbers mean, the context behind them. So not to get like super, you know, in the weeds of the numbers. But essentially, when they looked at all the different median values from these different micrograms they pulled, they found, which no one is talking about, that the total amount of chloramquat in the urine would be even less than one microgram. So I saw that that is 28,000 times smaller than the acceptable daily amount set by the European Food Safety Authority. And that's when I was like, oh, Again, EWG, because that's the same thing they do with the Dirty Dozen. Like they don't talk about the actual number, the dose, and the comparison to what that means to the standard acceptable safe limit. Yeah, they also only tested 42 food samples. And I feel like it was very strategic to attach it to a food that people feel like closely with, right? Like Cheerios is a part of our childhoods. You might be feeding it to your kids. And so they didn't even test that many foods. And yet they were like, it's in the majority of our oats products. And then like the headline, it's in Cheerios, right? Like that was like so crucial piece of this is like that that fear mongering around a brand that people really associate with. Especially one that's associated with children. Absolutely. People are going to be up in arms. Uh, You also mentioned Europe. We've talked about Europe a couple times, and I feel like this is a point I want to make is so often when we see this fear mongering online around food, we see like, oh, food is so much better in the EU. Their ingredients are so much better. I've even seen claims of people are like, I um, can eat gluten when I'm in Italy, but I can't eat gluten because in the United States because of the quote unquote chemicals. And so this had me chuckling a little bit that this chemical is not allowed in the United States and it is allowed in the EU. And it just goes to show like how different our approaches are in the United States versus the EU on how we approve or not approve different agricultural products and different like pharmaceutical products. Yeah, it was nice for once to be on top and to be like, haha, we are not the ones that are putting this in our crops. Oh. Uh, so going back to what I said about like, this is still a serious issue. To me, it's a serious issue. What I don't what I don't like came out of it, like you said, is the fear around Cheerios and our food system. I saw the article mention that what the EWG wants to get out of this is possible U.S. testing for Chloramquat. And I'd be like, okay, like, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with you bringing up this issue and having actual comprehensive studies to look into this further. Like, I don't have an issue with that. I do have an issue with pushing a headline that makes every single person now not to want to buy Cheerios, which listen, I'm not even a big Cheerios fan. I just don't like the idea of instilling more food in our food system. Yeah, I agree. I think that that should have been the headline, especially because the Biden administration is currently looking at approving this for U.S. use. So that could have been the headline. Like, hey, we did this pilot study. We think it's worth researching more before we like give approval to this. Um, On a side like tangent, it brings me back to our first article, though, is we were so ick about the thought of like, monkey farms and testing. And yet here we are like talking about an article that talked extensively about uh, how they had tested, done animal testing on this chemical to find out like the negative impacts. And it just reminds me that like we can be so quick to be like, no, no monkey farms, no testing. Like we don't like to think about that. And yet like those same outlets that would run with that story would have this saying, look at these animal testing. Like we need to be more careful. And I just feel like it's like such a juxtaposition for me of like where we're at with a society of like, we see a need for animal testing and yet we like don't want it in our backyard. No, that is such an interesting point. I think it's so valid because you're right. 
it, I mean, it goes to show the importance of these, the animal testing. Um, and again, I think, it, I mean, it goes to a conversation you and I talk a lot about when it comes to like eating meat, like when people have an issue with eating meat and like the animal welfare part around it, it's like, we have become so removed to some of the realities. And sometimes we think like, if we don't look at it, we won't have to like talk about it or deal with it. But like, that is not you know, the answer. Yeah. And then the final point I'll make is I was actually really proud of a couple, very few news articles and outlets that did not run with the fear mongering. One of them was Women's Health, and they had such a great article with an expert going over actual facts, like a doctor. They pulled Instagram um, videos that were very factual based. So if you wanted to like go over to Instagram and see it, like, such a phenomenal job. I wish those were the headlines that were like getting more attention and being covered because they actually got into the nuance and the details and talked about this like on an agricultural level, where it's being used, why it's being used. I mean, it was a phenomenal job. And so I just feel like one shout out there to women's health. Three claps for women's health. I know. Have I ever told you that I was once published in women's health? Yes, you have told me multiple times. <laughs> just like, it's my claim to fame. So just plugging it here. Okay. As always, if you guys have, you know, thoughts and two cents to add to this, we love to involve you guys in the conversation and get your opinions on takes, whether it is the monkey farms or the Cheerios, head on over to the Discover Ag Instagram page and let us know what you thought about today's topics. All right. That wraps up our articles for today, but don't go anywhere. We now have a great interview with Ryan Bennett, who is the executive director of U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Poultry and Eggs and the International Poultry Welfare Alliance. And this interview is such a great interview. If you have ever walked into the chicken aisle at the grocery store, the egg aisle at the grocery store, and had questions about how that chicken and eggs were produced, what the labels all mean, and just anything around the poultry and egg world. So let's dive into it. Hello, Ryan, and welcome to the Discover Ag podcast. Oddly enough, not being in the, you know, cattle or the chicken industry, Tarn, I've talked a lot about poultry on the podcast. It comes up, you know, from questions from the, the Discover Ag community, the discos. Um, it comes up a lot, actually, when we're guesting on other podcasts, too. And, you know, we try our best to field it and, you know, advocate for the poultry industry. But um, a lot of it we're just super unfamiliar with. So like Tara said, we're really excited to dive into this. I think one of the first things I want to start with is something that I do talk about when I go on kind of other podcasts or have this conversation. And that's a little bit about the vertical integration of poultry, because that is something that is different than, you know, the industry that I'm a part of, beef industry. And that is something that I think has gotten lost a lot. You know, animal proteins just kind of always get lumped together. So I would love for, you know, I, you know, share it through my words, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the way the chicken industry is laid out and how it works um, from your, you know, your view and your expert opinion. Yeah. So um, my family were dairy farmers. Uh, they got out around the time that I was born and went into beef cattle had row crops, did the did the 4-H thing. And uh, so, you know, I grew up in Maryland, um, but not in the part of Maryland where they raise chickens. So I would see it like on the way to the beach, but I wasn't familiar with it. But uh, just in chickens alone or broilers, you know, there's 25,000 family farmers raising those birds. And they are all located within a certain radius to a plant. So like my first week on the job, I went to, they call it a complex and you go to the central location and they do several things there, including processing. So they have the hatchery there where they take the chicks and then they'll, they'll hatch them, they'll get them as eggs, they'll hatch them, and then they'll send them out to those farmers, those family farms that they've contracted with that are all within a certain radius around that plant or that complex. and they'll obviously have signed a contract to grow those birds up to, you know, a certain age weight, um, feed a specific type of feed. Um, the plants are set up to handle a specific size bird based on like what the customer wants. And so like, they'll pick out like the genetics of the animal to match that they'll hatch those birds. They'll go out, they'll raise those up. And then obviously at the end of that cycle, they'll come back to the processing plant where 
they'll be processed into poultry. And then even within, there's still a range of weights and sizes even within that, that then the, that basically they'll know what the weight of each one of those birds are. And, you know, they might get marinated to go to one customer or they might, you know, be what you buy in the grocery store as, you know, your kind of roasted chicken in the grocery store. And then it gets sent out from there. It's crazy how different all of the sectors are. A lot of times we do what we call like a debunking series. So last summer we did this and then we did another one most recently where we take those wonderful uh, Netflix mockumentaries, as I like to call them, and we kind of like debunk some of the misinformation. And so we just recently covered You Are What You Eat. And they had a like previous retired chicken farmer. I don't know. They didn't give a ton of details about him and kind of covered some chicken aspect of it. And if there's one thing we know about these Netflix shows is they are filled with misinformation. Like Natalie and I know that to our core because we know it on the beef and dairy side. And so all of these, though, I feel like, you know, uh, mockumentaries, documentaries on Netflix always paint like the chicken farmer as like being controlled by like, you know, big ag, whatever that means exactly. But like the big players in the ag and poultry specifically industry. But you've mentioned kind of these contracts. Can you just like dive, I guess, a little deeper of what these contracts look like for the actual farmers? Like you've said, family farms. What does it look like when you sign a contract and are kind of in this like different system than maybe what Natalie and I are used to, what it means for the farmer? Yeah, obviously you own the land, you know, it's your farm, it's your barn, um, but you're agreeing to raise those birds for someone else who is then marketing, you know, that that poultry product. And, you know, I'm not an expert on how the different ways that you can dice up a contract, but, no, you know, every contract has some degree of certainty included in it. And then there's different ways that they can do it. So there's different tournament systems where you can get paid more for different parameters that they set for maybe excelling in a certain area of efficiency or quality, not just like efficient, not just based on, you know, growth factors, but quality when they get to the plant and what those birds look like when they get there. But that's all been kind of like worked with and changed over the years and evolved over the years. But in general, you know, those integrators need those farmers um, and need to be able to obviously pay them enough to be able to stay in business and continue to evolve as well, to be able to build new barns, to stay in business. That's something that does get, you know, talked about a lot, but it also adds a great deal of efficiency. So when you look at the price of chicken, you know, we're highly coordinating you know, the life cycle of that entire product from beginning to end. And I think it shows up, you know, we do sustainability, it shows up in our sustainability numbers as well, because it's a very highly coordinated process um, all the way through that those farmers are voluntarily agreeing to, you know, be a part of, if that makes sense. So. You know, sometimes in agriculture, I feel like we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, right? You know, sometimes I think about the spectrum of where People want us to lie. And I think there are people who, um, you know, want to revert back to, you know, the way food was done previously, right? You know, a very, Tara and I will call it like red barn syndrome, right? They want it to be very like, you know, your great, great grandpas, you're going out, you're hand milking your cows. It's like an idyllic red barn. You know, it's this picturesque setting, you know, but I always say like the future of food can't be the past. Like that isn't, you know, a, a, sustainable way to feed, um, whether people argue it's growing or not, like it's not a sustainable way to feed the population we have. On the opposite of the spectrum, we have people who, you know, want us to be, you know, future very tech driven. And, and this, this is about this balance, right? You know, and I think that's so interesting in the chicken industry, because, you know, it's like trying to and even any industry, right? It's like trying to find that balance between like, how do we meet all the demands we have to with still, you know, not getting too far one way or the other on the spectrum, right? I don't think it has to be an either or um, between like, you know, the natural environment versus the tech, because I think what what I'm seeing, at least, is the tech is allowing us to know what that animal naturally wants and needs and to be able to design systems that they can live in and be safe and efficient inside of and be able to to grow and produce an affordable product. Because I think, you know, a lot of people are still, 
you know, they want to know where their food comes from. They want to know that it's produced responsibly and ethically. Uh, but at the same time, you know, price, affordability, quality, health, safety are still things that when you talk to consumers are very much at the top of the list. So just a good example of that, we were just down at IPPE, which is, you know, our big show in Atlanta. It's massive. We have a booth there. And there was a guy with an audio system that's putting microphones inside of barns. And basically, he was showing me where there were spikes at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And there's lighting systems in those barns. And I was like, oh, do the lights just turn? So it's showing where the birds get really active when the lights come on. And then they're, they're getting really active when the lights are about to go off, like their internal clocks. It's like your dog begs for dinner at the same time every single night, right? So like they know when those lights are about to get off and they're getting more nervous. And I asked him, I said, so do the lights just turn right on and right off? And he said, no, they're on a timer. But like what this is showing is that like we probably need to like phase in slower and phase out more naturally to mimic that natural light to make the birds, you know, feel more comfortable and not as stressed when we kind of are coming on too fast and coming off too quickly. So those types of things, including like wavelengths, um, you know, one, and one thing that people think a lot about is like, oh, well, the birds all need light. Well, they're, they evolve from a jungle species. And if you're out in the middle of a field and you're a jungle species, you might kind of move out in that field and eat a little bit, but you're also looking around and afraid that you're going to get eaten by a tiger, right? When you're out in the open. So they like to be able to go into the light, but they also like to be, be able to come out of that light and feel safe. So some of those things, the technology evolutionary pieces are also kind of helping us learn and build a more natural environment for them as well. So I th I think it could be, I don't know that they're necessarily mutually exclusive, at least the way that I see things. Yeah, I think that it is fascinating how at the root of a lot of what we do, whether people always realize it or not, is like that animal comfort, you know, like coming from cow comfort, like that's the number one thing on our dairy is having those cows be as comfortable as possible. And it's, I think sometimes data gives you that, like our dairy is just installed like collars that the cows wear so we can like track, like having that information, like how relaxed is every single cow on our dairy. Um, and so it is cool to be able to incorporate technology in a way that it's like a and both, right? Like my husband you know, Natalie and I joke a lot on this podcast how our husbands cannot like find the ketchup in the fridge, but they can spot a sick cow like 200 yards out. And so but then being able to pair that with the technology mm -hmm. as well is like a really cool meld, actually, and gives so many benefits. Um, but going kind of to that, like technology and just like <clears throat> one of the things that really I think has consumers, it seems like worried is the scale, the size of facilities and farms. Like Natalie and I are absolutely no strangers to the word like factory farm. We see that online. We hear it online. Like it is a word that is now kind of a part of like farming terminology that people throw around without actually like knowing what it means or like what it even is. And I think that, you know, a lot of cases with poultry and eggs, like the size really intimidates people or has them concerned. Can you maybe like share and expand? a little bit on like what does the size mean for farmers and then on like the flip side what does it mean for like animal welfare you know like that i would say is just a big concern of people and i think that it's something natalie and i are not always able to answer being that we've never been inside a poultry barn um and so what are like kind of your boots on the ground perspective of that yeah i mean so on the on the broiler side you know there's roughly what 25,000 farms. Hey Ryan, can I interrupt you for a second? Can you explain just in case we have people tuning in because I'm sure we do that aren't super familiar with like broil like even the term broiler maybe. Can you break that down before we kind of get into some more of like the terminology? Yeah. So broilers are 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 basically meat chickens. Um and then obviously we call turkeys turkeys. And then they'll, if I refer to layers, layers are are egg-laying hens. I think that's something that even like has been again lost with, uh, you know, the general shoppers is that, you know, when we raise a chicken, we're not raising it for meat and eggs. You know, you raise it a chicken for just meat and meat alone, and then you'll raise chickens just for eggs. Like though those items in the, you know, supermarket, the grocery store aren't coming from the same animal. They're coming from probably, I mean, I don't know the exact differences, but I would guess like 
a lot of differences between those two animals, even though they're coming from technically the same animal. That's that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, your your dairy cow on on Natalie's uh, Nebraska ranch might not do as well. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> my dairy cow would do Natalie's. as well as I would do on Nebraska <laughs> Natalie's Nebraska ranch. I'd like freeze and like be like, please send me back south right now. But they're still both cows, right? And it's the same yeah. type of thing within within chickens. So, um, you know, they, you know, at some point somebody figured out this 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 chicken is better at laying eggs, and this chicken's a little bit more muscular and makes more meat. And we're gonna breed that one to make more meat, and we're gonna use this one to make better eggs. Um, and so, um, anyways, back to the original question. I don't remember what that is now. But that was- <laughs> That is my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, to bring us back around, my original question is the size, the scale of poultry and eggs, I feel like is one of the like sticking points or the points of concerns for consumers that Natalie and I see over and over again. So if you could just tell us a little bit from like the farmer side as well as the animal welfare side, like what those numbers mean, maybe what they don't mean, like the scale of, you know, poultry facilities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be totally honest. Like I mentioned, I did not grow up in the poultry industry. So I was I was kind of wanting to see what was going on <laughs> when I came into things as well. And like I mentioned, there's 25,000, you know, uh, broiler chicken meat farmers out there. They're family farmers. And they're contracting with someone that is a, a company that is marketing their products and do and lining all of that up and integrating that entire process that you know you're raising birds in a short time cycle there's a lot that goes into it and meeting those parameters of those customers so you know they're fulfilling a market need the farmers fulfilling a market need and they're you know using each other to you know make that process work. And in general, those are not large, massive mega farms. They are raised within barns. And you mentioned the red barn syndrome. We did that to ourselves, right? We did that with our marketing and people have not seen how we've evolved and gotten better and made our lives better and those animals better through (laughs) this evolutionary process but it's kind of, you know, different than what they expected when they see it, right? Because it's not that red barn that we use on the front of the packaging for all of those years to sell this quaint 1950s style farm, which, by the way, animals weren't living a better life and people weren't living a better life at that time. Um, so, yeah, it's a interesting thing. It is, you know, obviously we've gotten more scientific, more technological, but that doesn't mean that we're you know, making the animals into something that they're not. The animals are where it starts. We have to understand what the animals are, you know, their evolutionary process, what they want and what they need and build around that, um, not the other way around. And I think that's one of the most interesting things that I've seen. One of my board members will say this in front of his boss, who is the CEO of a large egg farm. Um, he will say, I do not work for him. I work for the chickens. I work for the birds. Um, and it's very true. You, you know, I think anybody who has any degree of stockmanship has to know that that's where it starts or else you're not going to be in business very long. I'm so curious, you know, because in the beef industry, we get picked on all the time um, about the big four packing industry, right? Like that is spoken about so much. Like, I feel like people, people know about the big four, right? Um, where did you call, you call them, was it contractors? 20, or So, so they're an integrator process. Integ- okay. Is that, has that been on the downhill decrease for the chicken? Like, what does, how does that evolution look for like, for you guys? Like, has it kind of been the same for us in the beef industry or have you guys like maintained steadily or how does that, you know, that looked for you guys in comparison to the, you know, 25,000 family farms that you're talking about. So, so as, as a category, we are growing, like consumption is growing, global growth is growing. People like chicken, people are eating more of it. Have we seen some consolidation? Yeah, but there's still, I mean, there's 30 of these, you know, companies that are doing this and some are bigger than others. You know, there's big, middle, small within that category. It's very similar type of dynamic, at least from what I know about beef. 
Um, but you know, there's, there's still a lot of people that, you know, are, are very much involved with setting the direction of the industry that are not a part of some of those larger companies. We've seen the same thing on the farm side, you know, where just market forces, you know, kind of has forced that over time. At the same time, it's, uh, it's maybe a lot less concentrated than what, what a lot of, a lot of people would think once you get on the inside and realize the number of players that are here. Yeah, I think that's always um, a piece of this is like people think it looks one way from the outside. And when you get inside, there's a lot more going on. There's just it, it looks different than what people imagine when you're looking from the outside. Um, you know, we're, we're coming down on time. So I definitely want to I mean, there's so many things we could get to. But I do think one thing that Tara and I really we always talk about it is like one of our soapboxes. It's we're we're going, you know, going to South by Southwest to talk about. So like we we inevitably always talk about food labels. And I remember I was in a grocery store, gosh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, maybe. And, you know, I, sh- I shop for my freezer a lot. And so I just don't spend a lot of time in, in the, the protein aisles. But I went to the chicken aisle, you know, that that day I was actually at Whole Foods. And I remember being so overwhelmed <laughs> and so confused by all the different labels on the different chicken packages. Um, and I thought, gosh, I'm in agriculture and I feel this way. I can only imagine how the general shopper who is, you know, the three to four generations removed feels trying to, to decipher this out. So are there labels that consumers shouldn't look for? You know, I talk a lot about that when I go on other podcasts about ones that don't necessarily mean anything when it comes to beef. You're like, if this is what you care about, look at this label when it comes to chicken. You know, do you have any advice for listeners like when they're they're grocery shopping for their chicken of like, if they care about this, maybe look for this or if you see this, it doesn't really mean anything. It's not even regulated. You know, I, I just think labels is such a muddled area for shoppers. Yeah. So first of all, I answer that the same exact way that you do is that like I'm in I'm in this industry and I don't know what, you know, some of these things mean. And it is overwhelming for me when I go to the grocery store um, and, um, you know, and it, but it's hard. It's it's also a hard thing to know exactly what's going on is the confusion creating the marketplace or is the marketplace creating mm-hmm. the need for these labels and and schemes or is it a little bit of both you know so um i don't know if there's been a study on that but if y'all ever find it please send it to me yeah we'll pass it um, along <laughs> But in general, I don't mind standards, like strict things that people have to do, even if those standards like have things in them that like I don't agree with. At least I know what they're doing and I know what they have to do. Like, is it being regulated and audited, you know, independently? Like, do they have it written down what they have to be doing? And is there somebody checking like an actual certification? Is there somebody actually checking? Like, even if I don't necessarily like personally agree with what's in there, like at least I know what it is. I know what the rules of the game are and how they're following or not following them. So like, I, I tend to like, if you connect with something and you want to buy it, um, I am like, you know, are they regulated? Are they audited? Are they doing actually auditing or are they just saying it? But then it also gets confusing too. Like, you know, we'll say, um, you know, like, and it's 100% true, we don't have any hormones or steroids, right? And that's by federal law. We don't... We, yeah, gosh, we didn't even talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's on the label, you know? And, and like, that's that's true. It has to be true because it's by law. No antibiotics ever, not by law, but it's something that if you weren't doing it, you would be in a lot of legal trouble. Um and then, you know, there's all these other things like there that they'll say, like, all natural, you know, that's pretty unregulated type of term terminology. But then there might be a naturally whatever certified, right? And you could go to a website and figure out what that means or doesn't mean. Um, and there's different parameters and restrictions. So I guess like on the standard side, at least they have to live up to something. What we're doing with at the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Poultry and Eggs, we're trying to give that data to everybody, whether you're going through one of these um, labeling standards or whatever, that you can get more information about how your chicken, turkey or eggs were raised 
what the impact on the environment was, you know, what the track record is on employees, how the animals were raised. We're just trying to get more information, whether that be to consumers, to investors, to communities where these companies are operating. We're trying to just make things more transparent and open things up and really invite these tough conversations. Like some of these questions are not like the easiest questions that I always... (laughs) You know, but like we want to have those conversations, you know, and like keep it real. So it's my hope that like we get to a point to where people are have more access to this type of information. We're providing more. We're providing accurate data about how their food is being raised, regardless of whether they buy that through something that's, you know, branded through a certification or standard or or not. So um, that's. That's really where I see things going. And I'm, I'm excited about that personally, because I, I do want people to be more knowledgeable about where their food comes from, because I think it will lead to better outcomes rather than worse. So I don't want to hide from people. And I feel like the red barn was was a version of us just kind of being lazy and hiding, hiding from people on that for a long time, if that makes sense. No, yeah. On that note, like if people want to learn more information, like where would you recommend them going? Is there a website you would direct them to? Um, What would you recommend? So we're going to be doing more on our website. The NCC has a chicken check-in website. U.S. Poultry and Egg Association has a website. But stay tuned. U.S.RSP.org is going to is going to be doing more on this. Uh, PoultryWelfare.org. We also have an animal welfare group that I run um, and. we're going to try and do more of these kind of like short things that can, if you're interested, that you can get the information that you want and need from an objective source in a very quick and easy to digest format. So we are working on that, but we don't have that done yet. That's this year. We will link in our show notes to a couple of those resources. But to close this out, we really want to thank the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Poultry and Eggs for coming on the podcast and the International Poultry Welfare Alliance. Uh, Thank you for being, you know, a part of Discover Ag and letting us learn a little bit more about the poultry and egg industry. And with that, we will see you guys next week. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials. Hi, Emily here, host of the Sideline Edit Sports Podcast. And this is not your typical boyfriend sports podcast, but rather a space where I curate and break down what's trending in the world of sports on and off the field. Every week, I leave you with just the right amount of information so that you can join in on any sports conversation. You'll know what the big game of the week was, what event to be on the lookout for next, what team is hot, who had the best game day fit, because trust me, the fashion is elite, and I'll just fill you in on who some of these main characters are. Tune in as I weave together sports, pop culture, and everything in between, because I truly think sports are the best reality TV out there. Check out the Sideline Edit podcast every Monday for a weekend recap. See you there.